0: guys Good morning. you are just solid in your salutations <laughs> hope you're doing great uh, if you're a guest with us my name is Brandon welcome we are in week two of a look at the book of Esther and the obvious but interesting thing about preaching through a narrative uh, book of the Bible is that you pause week to week without finishing the story right Like we left last week, the story wasn't done. Uh, We're certainly not the first church to break the the book of Esther into two halves. It has been done before because it is a really helpful way to experience the power of the message of Esther. So where we stopped last week uh, allows us to see the contrast between the first half of the story of Esther, which is both sad and terrifying for God's people if you were paying attention. Contrast that with the second half of the story, which we're about to look at. But I want to get us thinking in that direction first uh, by talking about a different story altogether the story of one Frodo Baggins <laughs> and his friends, Sam, Mary, and Pippin. They've been charged, some of you might have heard the story, they've been charged with protecting the world. By carrying the one ring, and then they find themselves at weathertop, with their enemies approaching. And we read this I'm going to read you a paragraph. Over the lip of the little dale on the side, away from the hill, they felt, rather than saw, a shadow rise, one shadow, or more than one. They strained their eyes, and the shadows seemed to grow, kids. Soon there could be no doubt three or four tall black figures were standing there on the slope looking down on them. Frodo thought that he had heard a faint hiss as a venomous breath and felt a thin, piercing chill. Then the shape slowly advanced. Terror overcame Pippin and Merry and they threw themselves flat on the ground. Sam shrank into Frodo's side. Frodo was hardly less terrified than his companions. He was quaking as if it was bitter cold. And then these tiny hobbits are attacked. It's one of the dark, I know I'm reading it dumb, but it's one of the darkest moments in the early portion of the story, The Lord of the Rings. In fact, a paragraph later, Frodo is stabbed With a magical blade. No one knows if he's going to live. No one knows if the ring is going to fall into the hands of the wrong people. No one knows if the world is about to be destroyed. And here's the point. If we only looked at the story of the Lord of the Rings through the lens of the events in the Weathertop ruins, it would be a terrible story. Would it be sad? Yes. Painful, so much. Hopeless, even. But of course, that terrifying moment, that near death experience for them, it's only page 189 of a 1008 page <laughs> epic. Weathertop isn't the story, it's just a moment. In the story, in fact, everyone who was attacked on page 189 is still alive at the end of the story when the one ring has been destroyed and the realm has been saved and they all get to be happily ever after in the Shire. The beautiful message of the second half of Esther is that that same reality was true thing is true for the people of God. In black men, gray chairs today. The moments that don't make sense to us aren't the story. The moments of pain aren't the story, they're only part of the story. And if you have a relationship with God through the work of Jesus, it is what it is. We have so many promises from such a good God. Just last week we saw the first half of the book. Mike already said it. God is always working for the good of his people. And if he is always working, then we can always be walking, always be turning the page of our own lives. Knowing with hope, as Paul said in Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good for those who love God and who are called according to his purposes. So last week, the book of Esther taught us to look for the sovereign hand between the lines of our lives as God works the details, even when we can't see him and even though the book itself doesn't say his name. And this week, the book of Esther is going to teach us that our God works. Restores that he takes the heartache of page 189 and he turns it into glory. And here's how we're going to see that. So to help us see that God makes things new, let me give you a quick recap in case you weren't here last week or you've forgotten. It's going to be even way faster this time. Of the first half of the book of Esther, Xerxes, a.k.a. Ahasuerus, was the king of Persia. I hope y'all remember that. Otherwise, I got a lot to to recap. He was wealthy. He was powerful. He threw a 180-day feast to start to show how awesome he was. That's how the story starts. However, his wife, Vashti, decides she's not going to show up and show off herself to the partiers, so Xerxes decides to look for another wife. A young orphaned Jewish woman named Esther is chosen uh, to go to the palace to be the potential new queen. Mordecai is her cousin. He also acted as her father after a year of beauty makes Esther his queen. Mordecai then spoils a plot to kill the king, but the king com- immediately forgets about Mordecai. Instead, he promotes an evil man named Haman to, to, and gives his authority to Haman Haman uses that authority to decide to kill all the Jews in Persia. The story gets dark real quick. Xerxes blesses the plan to exterminate the Jews. Mordecai, through the gate, sends word to Esther that perhaps she is a queen for such a time as this. Esther decides to risk her life to go before the king, knowing that if he doesn't want to see her, he can have her killed. She goes before Xerxes. He says he will listen to her request, and that's where we left things off. Last week, and I said that with a little more oxygen than I needed. <laughs> but we focused on how God was working through all those details behind the scenes to rescue his people, even though his name wasn't mentioned. But if you notice where we left off last week, the people, God's people, still hadn't been rescued. Injustices still hadn't been made right. Death still loomed over the people of God. But God is always working for the good of his people. God is always making things new. So I'm about to spoil the second half of the book of Esther real quick. And you're going to have to forgive me. But this is what happens next. Esther finds a way to tell the king everything that's been going on. And, and the king immediately kills our antagonist Haman on his own gallows. The king gives Mordecai. The king. We're coming back to all this. I just got to give you the, the, the recap of the story real quick. The king gives Mordecai Haman's former authority to give another decree. And because Persian law allowed for no king decree to be revoked... Mordecai had to make a second decree saying that the Jewish people could protect themselves. They do. They are victorious. Esther goes from orphan to queen. Mordecai goes from being forgotten to being remembered forever for his victory. The Jews go from being victims to victorious. They go from fasting to feasting. And the whole story is one of restoration and of of the Lord behind the scenes making things new. And if you're like, why did you go through that so fast and spoil five chapters for us? It's worth it, I think, because it will help you see the nature of God if you know the theme of his actions as we walk through them. I want you to know that he's tying up all these ends. Like, I mean, obviously, any book authored by God is a masterpiece, but Esther is a masterpiece, of that literary framework that we talked about last week, God working sovereignly even though his name isn't, isn't mentioned. But just the, the sh- I'm only going to give you three, the sheer uh, weight of poetic justice and reversal and restoration in this book is astounding between part one and part two. So what we're going to do for the next few minutes is see three examples of God making things new in the book of Esther. They're powerful pictures, pictures of supernatural re- restoration that we want to see in our lives, whatever our page 189 looks like. I, I'm apparently more weirdly excited. I just, know that, I just noticed someone did leave me a treat this week. I just noticed it is the treats are shrinking, which is appropriate. So Thank you. Whoever left me a lolly, it's Okay, first thing for us to see is God made new rejoicing out of old weeping. New rejoicing from old weeping. And I'm going to ask you to flip around a lot because basically you're going to have to go back and forth between the halves to see these things. But in the story of Esther, God's people had major reasons to cry. Major reasons to cry sometimes it's okay to cry they were exiles in a foreign land this was not their home they did not have power here a decree and even if none of that was true a decree had been given that they would all be murdered because of their jewish heritage That is a reason to cry. That is a reason for weeping. In fact, Mordecai learned of this news and he didn't just cry alone in his bedroom. Look at Esther 4, verse 1. 4, 1. When Mordecai learned all that had occurred, he tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth and ashes, and he went into the middle of the city and cried loudly and bitterly. That's Esther 4, 1. But thankfully, Esther has 10 chapters. Because God restores Mordecai and his people. He turns that weeping into rejoicing. And the end of the story, the Jewish people are no longer mourning. Mordecai is no longer wearing sackcloth and ashes. Instead, look what he is wearing. This is in chapter 8, verses 15. So I'm just going to keep showing you the contrast. And if you don't think it's cool, forgive me. That's what's going to happen for the next 15 minutes. Mordecai, this is verse 15 of chapter 8. So he's, he's... the first half sackcloth cloth and ashes crying in the middle of the city. The second half of the story, Mordecai went from the king's presence clothed in royal blue and white with a great gold crown and a purple robe of fine linen. The city of Susa shouted and rejoiced and the Jews celebrated with gladness, joy and honor. That's the heart of God. God makes new rejoicing out of old mourning. They were going to be mass murdered. <laughs> But then they were rescued, and it was so amazing. And they threw a feast. Flip over to chapter nine, verse twenty-two. Nine twenty-two. Because during those days the Jews gained relief from their enemies. That was the month when, normally, I've just got my points. Will kind of be the Bible's points. That was the month when their sorrow was turned into rejoicing and their mourning into a holiday. They were to be days of feasting, rejoicing, and sending gifts to one another and to the poor. It's so cool. Mordecai gets royal treatment. God's people get salvation, and they feast. The feast actually became an And it's a day all about celebrating the power of the goodness, the newness of God, the restoration. Unlike the Passover feast, which is the most famous Jewish feast, that's more of a somber occasion. This was a shouting. It says they, they celebrated with gladness. They shouted. They rejoiced. They gave presents to everybody that wanted a present. Because their God is a God who makes things new, and our God is that God who makes things new. Listen to Old Testament. You're not going to believe this. Listen to Old Testament scholar Victor, Victor Hamilton share the difference between Passover and Purim, these two feasts. This one's being instituted right here. We just watched it be instituted. It's still happening today. These two festivals, he writes, both both dramatically reenact Israel's deliverance from death and annihilation at Egypt's hands, that's Passover, from death and annihilation at Persia's hands, that's Purim, the and then he puts them together while also drawing a contrast. The appropriate response when God intervenes on behalf of his people includes the holiness that goes with the Passover and the hilarity that goes with Purim. It encompasses the sobering, reflective mood on Passover and the less-than-sober Purim on which, according to the Babylonian Talmud, a man is obligated to drink until he is unable to distinguish between blessed is Mordecai and cursed is Haman. The two festivals unite piety and party. Listen, raising one's voice to God and raising the roof. That's a theologian that just said, God saved you, raise the roof. Now, I'm not telling to get your drinking parameters from the Babylonian Talmud. That is not our source. But I am telling you that Jesus makes new rejoicing out of old weeping. And that's not just for ancient Jews. If you belong to Jesus, he has given you everlasting life. You have been rescued from eternal death to eternal life. You were under a death sentence. And now you have a forever life sentence. You have the promise of heavenly glory. You were lost. And now you're adopted, right? Right? Like Mordecai, Jesus has given us new clothes. We're no longer clothed in our sin. We're now clothed in his mercy, the Bible says. We are clothed in his righteousness. It is as though we have a royal crown and a purple robe, and we're walking around in the glory of Sisa, just like Mordecai because of what Jesus does. So in one sense, in, this is so important uh, both for, uh, for each of these points and for life in general. In one sense... God has already turned our weeping into rejoicing. And there is another sense in which he is always turning our weeping into rejoicing. And there is yet another sense in which he will one day ultimately turn our weeping into rejoicing. But much more on that in a moment. First, let's look at another example. Another example of God's restorative character in the book of Esther. So he made new rejoicing out of old weeping. Number two, he made new wins out of old weakness. Man, he's good. Remember again that when the book of Esther opens, Esther and Mordecai are in the weakest of the weak position. They're exiles in Persia. Esther's an orphan. Even after she becomes queen, she's still weak. She tells, the, she tells Mordecai, I don't even see the king, and I can't go to him without wondering if he's going to kill me. We also know that Mordecai was left on, <laughs> left on the outside. He's outside of the gate of the castle, uh, sneaking notes through the walls, I guess, to get to the queen. Listen, all the while they're at uh, the mercy of a murderous proclamation against them. I mean, God's people in this story have less leverage than you think you have no power, no hope on their own. But all of that, all of that changes because God works good for his people. He is the God of restoration. Let it into your heart that he is the God who makes things new. After Haman's full plot is discovered and King Xerxes is furious, he, he sentences Haman to death and he gives all of Haman's property and authority to Esther and Mordecai. Flip to Esther 8, one. All the good stuff's in the second half. 8 1, read with me. That same day, King Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, awarded Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. Just throwing that in there. Mordecai entered the king's presence because Esther had revealed her relationship to Mordecai. The king removed his signet ring that he had recovered from Haman, gave it to Mordecai, and Esther put him in charge of Haman estate. So much victoriousness. Is that a word? Springing out of just a few verses. So in eight chapters, Esther has gone from an orphan to the queen with the entire estate of Haman, and Haman was the second most powerful man, and at that point, the world's richest nation. That guy was super loaded, I'm certain of it. And why did Esther get it? Because the king, here you go, because the king gave it to her. Powerless here. Mordecai, an immigrant, an outsider, outside the gate he's brought into the palace and he's given a signet ring of the king which means he has the authority to make decrees the king just gives mordecai his authority you were going to die and you got an inheritance instead that's the gospel You were an alien and a stranger. I was an alien and a stranger. And Jesus says, here's my signet ring instead. Of course, it was not only Esther and Mordecai, but all the Jews living in Persia who saw this victory spring out of weakness in spite of themselves. Mordecai used his newfound authority to decree that they could fight back. Read Esther 9-1. Now we're 9-1 with me. 9-1. This is crazy. The king's command and law went into effect on the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. Love this. On the day when the Jews' enemies had hoped to overpower them, just the opposite happened. The Jews overpowered those who hated them. Just the opposite happened. Because God restores his people. And that same, listen, that same type of victory has happened to you if you are in Christ. Just the opposite happened. And it will happen to an even greater degree in the, in the future. But already you have been invited from outside the gate into the presence of the king, right? Right? Already you are no longer outside the gate. Already you have an internal inheritance. We didn't earn it. The king just gives it. The king just gives it. Already we have more than a signet ring. It was yesterday morning. I was reminded that one of the uh, ways that the New Testament talks about the Holy Spirit is as a signet ring. As a mark of God's authority. It's in Ephesians. I think it's twice in Ephesians. In Christ, we have spiritual authority, which we talked a lot about in Acts. We have it right now with the spirit inside of us. Just like the Persian Jews in Jesus, you have been set free, empowered, given an inheritance, given a future. The Bible says we are co-heirs with Jesus, awaiting an everlasting kingdom because that's how God works. He's the God of restoration. He's the God who makes things new. He makes new winds out of old weakness. Now here, let me give you a third way to look at it. I'm going to break the stage first. Um, but hopefully you're getting the theme. Number three: He made new celebrations out of old secrets. Because remember, in the first half of Esther, Mor- Mordecai tells Esther to hide her identity. We read that last week. We can reread it again in Esther 2:10. 2:10. Esther did not reveal her ethnicity. Or her family background because Mordecai had ordered her not to make them known. Why would they hide this identity? Why would they hide the fact that they were Jewish? Some scholars actually think it's because they weren't very devout Jews. Man, I hope that's why because that would sure encourage my heart. You know, gifted to dwell, but they stay in a pagan land instead. Maybe that's why they hid. Maybe it's because they, didn't, they were scared of people like Haman and the persecution that they thought might come. Even they didn't know it would come. But they kept their identity a secret in, in stark contrast to some of the others that we see living in exile in the Bible. Think Daniel. My goodness, that guy didn't keep it a secret. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, throw me into the fire first, right? Esther and Mordecai were like admittedly secret, secretive about belonging to God. But God brings restoration anyway. Doesn't he do it anyway? God used the circumstances that he was overseeing in the background to pull his people into the foreground. So Esther identifies as a daughter of God, as the people of God when when she goes before the king. Her boldness through the series of events results in the decree that the Jewish people can defend themselves. And notice what happens when the edict goes out. This is Esther 8.17. 8.17. This is hilarious. In every province and every city where the king's commands and edicts reached, gladness and joy took place among the Jews. That makes sense. There was celebration. There was a holiday that we've already mentioned. And many of the ethnic groups in the land professed themselves to be Jews because of fear of the Jews overcame them. So that's making things new. Not only do Esther and Mordecai come out of hiding, listen, we're God's people, he is protecting us, but then other ethnic groups who are not even Jewish claim to be Jewish too. That's bandwagon Jews. <laughs> and that very verse says again that there was a celebration, a holiday, that Feast of Purim, the Feast of Rejoicing, former exiles, former hiders, hiding. Hiding out into the public partying because of the mercy of God. That's what God does, church. He restores. He reverses. He makes things new. But perhaps you hear, like, that's a lot of hope. That's three different ways of saying the same hope from a story designed to give us hope. But maybe you can't quite reconcile that right now with what's on page 189 of your life you know like maybe you're in the weather top ruins right now or you can remember when you were and you still don't understand it maybe you feel like your enemy is approaching you right now or or you remember when you were and and you still don't see the restoration right Like, it's possible to wonder how God can possibly be a God of restoration, which he says he is and shows he is based on the story that you're living. Like, I look at my page 189 and believe that. I want to give us two ways to think about our lives in light of the character of God that we see in Esther. Two ways. To think about your story when your story doesn't seem like it's being restored. And the first is to remember that God knows about the story more than we do. God knows more about the story than we, God knew everything about Esther's story from beginning to end. He's piecing it together. she's freaking out. God knows every, He wrote the story. God knows everything about your story. On page 189 of The Lord of the Rings, Frodo's terrified, but do you know who wasn't? J.R.R. Tolkien. (laughs) It's the author. He knew how it was going to go. He already saw, he already saw the ring melting in the fire at the end. Esther chapter 4 Mordecai was terrified. You know who wasn't? The God of heaven and earth. The author. He already saw the ring going onto his finger in the back half of the story. So, can we remember... In our pain, our confusion, our fear, whatever it is that's on the page, that God is always working for the good of his people and that he knows every single detail that we can't see, that we can't understand. He's not just a participant. He's not just a character. He's the author. He knows more about the story than we do. And he loves us more than we'll ever understand. Tim Keller once said, if we knew what God knows, we would ask exactly for what he gives. That guy was wise. If we knew what God knows, we would ask for the same things he's going to do anyway because all things work together for good. Regardless of what page 189 feels like, trust that he will make things new. And secondly, remember that the story is longer than this life. Remember, as we said 20 minutes ago, as a Christian, in one sense, your weeping has been turned into rejoicing. And you know this. But in another sense, that ultimate rejoicing is still in front of you. We got to touch on this a little bit in Sunday school today. It's still ahead of us. That day is still coming. See, the story of Esther ends with rejoicing. The story of the whole Bible ends with ultimate rejoicing. The end of history is a story of ultimate rejoicing. When I was a very young preacher, I was 19 or 20 years old, I saw Francis Chan do what has become a pretty famous illustration called The Dot Versus the Line. And he used it to show that I've got my daughter's uh, knit again now, so let me see if I can. Okay, can Dewey, can you go grab that? I, rec- I recruited some help. And Joy, you come grab this end. Dewey, you take the ball. There you go. Kind of unwind it that direction. There you go. Just go all the way to the wall, little love. And Joy, you're going to take this end and walk all the way to the wall. And I want you to come all the way up here. Scooch up just a little hair. There you go. No, that way. You got it. You got it, beauty. Keep walking that way. We did not practice. <laughs> Good job, guys. So in, in Francis Chan... In Francis Chan's illustration, he put one little dot on the line and said, most people live for this moment, this dot. is your whole life, and this is, the, this is eternity. I want to take, take a little bit different approach to that uh, about the promise that God is making all things new for his people. Um, so this line represents eternity. Keep going that way a little bit more, Beauty. Let's get a little more eternal. <laughs> So you have to imagine that this line, that this, this, this knitting, that's great, Beauty. You crushed it. Thank you, guys. So you have to imagine that it's infinity, like God has no beginning, no end. Last week we talked about the world does have a beginning, so it can't be infinitely backwards in time. God can be, and therefore the story of the world is. Infinite in this direction. More importantly for us right now, living on page 189, infinite in that direction. And so... Uh, I'm going to, oh, you got to be able to see the line. Oh, my gosh. Keep it tight. Keep it tight, girls. Keep eternity tight. There you go. Okay. So uh, so let me use an example similar to how we start. A different story, but another beautiful story with another momentary affliction in the story. So this, I was willing to do this for you guys. This is a single page. Oh, I have two copies, which is why. <laughs> This is a single page of the Wing Feather Saga, and a lot of you will have heard that story. I almost cry as soon as I say, If you have, kids, if you haven't read it, make your parents buy you the Wing Feather Saga. You're welcome, parents. Don't tear a page out. That's right. Don't pay attention to what Brandon does. Uh, on this page, the Wing Feather children are about to be taken by the black carriage, if you remember that part of the story. And it's a doom sentence in this story. It's a dark moment. It says of Janner, the oldest wing feather child, deep down, Janner didn't have the slightest idea how they would get out of this mess. He feared they wouldn't. From what he'd heard, much bigger and braver people had been forced into the black carriage. Why wouldn't they? Those bigger and braver people were never seen again. So why should they? And we are all Janner sometimes. How are we going to make it through? That what, This makes no sense. This doesn't make sense. This feels awful. This page can be filled with so much pain. And I don't know you guys well enough to know what's on your page, 189 This this page could be full of your cancer diagnosis or the day that you had an unscheduled meeting with HR and found out you were getting fired. The day your mom died, the day, Lord forbid, your child died could be on this page. This page might even maybe contain the death sentence for all of God's people living in ancient Persia. You're doing great, girls. And sometimes it's hard to believe that it's just one page, but it is. Look at this. It's one page. This is one page in an infinite story. It's more than that. It's one page. Hold on, I marked the spot. It goes right here. It's one page in one story. Keep it tight, girls. Pull against each other right now. Great job. It's one page. This is a four-book set. It's one page, a part of a story, a part of a story. But ultimately, wherever you put it, it's an infinite story. And it's an infinitely good story. You girls can drop eternity now. Thank you. Go back to mommy. Y'all are amazing. An infinitely good story that an infinitely good God is still writing to which we know the ending. How much pain is on your page? I don't know. I don't know. But I know the story goes on. (laughs) Long after the series of your life ends. (laughs) Here's page 1008. (laughs) Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Man, I thought I would do it today. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Pain, crying, sadness, grief, no more. The previous things are passed away. Why Because the one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. Behold, I am making everything new. And I don't know what's on your page, but God knows. So remind your hurting heart that the line keeps going. The story keeps going. Jesus sees our tears and he will turn them into triumphs. He sees our death and he will turn them into life. He sees our loss. And just like those of you who know the saga know the saga, just like the very last chapter of the wing feather saga is called the former things have passed away. Jesus will turn our loss into everlasting life. Jesus makes new rejoicing out of old weeping. He makes new wins out of old weakness. He makes new celebration out of old secrets, and he'll do that forever, forever. I'm going to close this in prayer. And then if you, would lo- if you would like to pray with someone about your page 189, we will have pastors ready to pray with you we would love to pray with you. Let's look towards our future hope together. Father, there's nobody like you. You are the author, and I pray that as we look at the things in our lives that we don't really understand sometimes, the things that hurt us so much that it feels like we can't bear it sometimes, that we know that you keep writing. We know that we know, the cross says that we know that we know you are a God of restoration and renewal and victory. It is who you are, it is what you do, no matter what it costs. So God, I pray that you would give us a patient hope, a patient hope, knowing that the line keeps going and that the story keeps going and that one day we will be with you forever. Jesus, one day we will be with you forever. And I pray that you would comfort us in the meantime and help us to comfort one another with that truth in the name of Christ. Amen.